So as we continue tonight, we're in chapter 16, and we're looking at that seventh, that seventh bowl judgment, that final bowl judgment. And what we're going to see tonight is we're going to see the results of the battle of Armageddon. <laughs> we're going to see the results of the battle of Armageddon. If you remember, the sixth bowl last week was basically showing us how mankind does not repent as God judges and tries to, to call them to repentance through various types of, of judgment and tribulation. They instead harden their hearts. And really, at the end of that, that passage last week, we saw that the whole world had hardened their heart against God and even come together against God. And that's what the Battle of Armageddon symbolizes, symbolizes the whole world's hatred for God, all, un, all the unbelieving world, and they will gather themselves against God. So we're going to see the end here in verse 17 of, of the results of that battle, Battle of Armageddon. Look at verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. <laughs> and that's it. The anticlimactic end of the battle of Armageddon. Folks, it comes down to God speaking, and it's over. There is, it's, it's always been ironic to me why it's even called the battle of Armageddon. There really is no battle. The world comes together. They, get their, you know, they can get all that they want, all their forces and all their anger pointed toward God and try to defeat him, but it's no fight, folks. It's no contest. God simply speaks the word, and it's complete. It's over. Now, we're going to see more detail about how that works, but this is so important that we understand that it is from the very mouth of God, his, his, his words, that this thing is finished. It's over. And I think it reminds us of that. I think if we look at this verse, we can't help but be reminded as we read that from the temple came a voice that said, it is done. What does that remind you of? It reminds me of John chapter 19, verse 30, as Christ was dying on the cross. And he said, it is is finished. Tetelestai. Tetelestai. It is finished, which literally means it is accomplished. If we look at that real quick, John 19:30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. So gave up his spirit. So this looks like defeat initially. He just died on a cross. And yet we understand this is the greatest victory of all time. This is the victory. This was the victory cry. It is finished. It is accomplished. We see a little bit more of this in Matthew 27, 50 through 51. Just again, looking at that moment when Jesus conquered sin, Satan, death. Look at verses 50 and 51. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. So it's important that we see the similarity of language used in the description of Christ on the cross, the words used, and things that were happening with what we're seeing here in Revelation at the final speaking of the end, the final judgment from God, when all things come to an end as we know them in this world. Think about this. The word it is done, which is not telestai, but it is genanen, which is a very closely related word, but this word means it has come to pass. So we have to understand that on the cross, Christ was and did win the battle, the war, so to say. It was, it's done. And then 
John shows us, who also uh, obviously was, was with Christ, on, watching him on that cross say, it is finished, seeing and experiencing the, the pitch black that came over the whole world, feeling the earth shake. And then he sees this vision when, when Jesus says, it has come to pass. So John heard him say, it is finished, which meant it is accomplished. And then he hears him finally say, it has come to pass. Now there's a, there's a, there's a difference here. I want us to understand these words and they, they play together beautifully. Everything needed for our salvation and for the victory of Christ and the conquering of sin, the conquering of Satan and our death was, the, it was accomplished on the cross. There is no more war to be fought. There's no more battle to be, to, to, to be, to be waged. But we're not, as I say this every, every week when we preach about salvation, we have been saved, we are being saved, but we will be saved. It's a future tense. That's glorification. When we experience all of the salvation that Christ has purchased for us. So what I'm saying is, when Christ accomplished victory and defeated the enemy 2,000 years ago, we still have this rumblings of the earth, right? There's still some things going on. We're not experiencing it to the point where we can sit back and say, it's come to pass. It, all the promises have already come to pass. I'm sitting in glory. Apart from all sin and pain and death and suffering, it has come to pass. Well, we know that we're not there yet. And so, so what's important about this is to understand we're right here in the middle, right? <laughs> we're right here in the now and now. And, and what we have to understand about this connection between it is finished and it has come to pass is this. Christ's victory over sin, Satan, and death was won on the cross. No question. And as a matter of fact, we got to think of it this way, folks. That was not only where he was crushed for our sins by the wrath of God, but it was also on the cross where he was crowned the conquering king of the universe. We don't think about that. It was not only a crushing for sin on the cross, but it was the coronation service as well. He is the king. He was the conquering king that day. And we're waiting for what? The returning king. He, he's king. And he's been ruling through his church and by the gospel ever since. And Satan has been on a short leash waiting for the return of the king and his final judgment. So you see what we're seeing is this, that on the cross, the words, it is finished, the battle was done, the victory was won, my sin was paid for, my hell was vanquished, my death was defeated, that's done. It's accomplished. I'm not quite experiencing yet enough to where we say, hey, it's all come to pass. Everything that he promised, my eternal life is coming to pass. But on this day, John is talking about what's going to happen, right? And he says, that's the voice that cries out. It's Christ on his throne in the temple that is able to say at that seventh bowl judgment, it's done! It's done! It is coming to pass now! This is it. I think it's like this. I, I was trying to think, what kind of analogy can I use? And analogies always break down, so don't, you know, again, you can always pick these things apart because we're just humans, right? We're trying our best to, to, to figure out in, uh, the, the infinite in a, in a finite brain. But let's just say you've got, your family has been all excited about a, 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 a family cruise, and you're, you're all excited, and, and you, you have purchased the tickets. 
you've got them, right? It's, it's paid for. It's ready to go. And you're looking at those tickets. The kids look at the tickets. Everybody's like, wow, we're going on this cruise. Look at the brochure. Look at this uh, slide. And I don't know if you've seen modern cruise ships now, but they got, they're almost like a, a, a floating amusement park. So, I mean, it's like the kids are looking at the brochures. Look at this. It's already been paid for. It, it, here's the tickets. We're, it's accomplished in that sense. But has it come to pass yet? No, 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 not until a few months. When one day you see those kids floating on the water, sitting in the lazy Susan, or not lazy, the lazy river, floating around that, that ship, um, eating ice cream all night long, uh, enjoying all that stuff. Folks, it has come to pass. You see that? That's, that's what the book of Revelation is showing us. It's showing us our time is, is, is in this what we call the church age, this age of grace, from the day that Jesus died victoriously conquering sin and accomplishing our salvation to the day it comes to pass. Do you, do you see that? And that's what Revelation is encouraging, encouraging us about. It's reminding us, yes, he accomplished it all, folks, and yes, though you're suffering now, it will come to pass. And John sees that in this vision, and he shares it with us, and Christ in his grace shares it with us, his church, to encourage, encourage us about this, waiting for the return of the king and for us to say with the Lord, it has come to pass. Wow. <laughs> this is, okay, let's continue. That's the basic idea of this whole text that we're looking at tonight, but let's notice some more details. What does it look like when God defeats once and for all the enemies with a word, well, the world is destroyed, for one thing. Revelation 16, 18 through 21. I'm just going to read the whole rest of this text, and then we'll come back and talk about a few points. But look at this. He said, it's, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there has never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The city was split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away and no more mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Again, even to the end, even, to the, the, even at the very end, sinful man doesn't repent, doesn't cry out for help, but he curses, curses God to the, at the, very, to the very end. Now let's talk about that earthquake because again, we saw that was similar with both both acts that we've seen tonight we saw when jesus said it is finished what happened the earth quaked we see god finally say and, and the lamb cry out from from the throne it is done and what happens the earth quakes but this quake is a different quake it, it, it made very strong uh gave very strong language about that right it said hey since man was on earth there has never been or or will be Another earthquake like this. Great was that earthquake. So again, this is not just a, a, a great earthquake. It is the great earthquake of Haggai chapter 2. If we look at the book of Haggai, we see mentioned 
in, in, in verses 6 and 7, this earthquake. Notice what it says. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations. So this prophet way back in the Old Testament is receiving this message. God has shaken nations before. The earth trembled. The earth trembled at Mount Sinai for the children of Israel. The earth has trembled and quaked. I mean, even till recent days, we see earthquakes all around the world. It happens. And yet, what we see here in Haggai is this prophecy of an earthquake that will not only shake earth, but it will shake all of heaven, all of the sea, all of the land. And it said, yet once more, literally only once more, there will only be one great earthquake that will come, one great, once more I will shake everything. That's what he's saying. So this is a one-time judgment here. It's not just talking about all the earthquakes that happen. This is the one time. When will this happen? Hebrews 12 picks up on this. The writer of Hebrews knew the Old Testament. The writer of Hebrews shows us how Christ fulfills the Old Testament. And notice what Hebrews 12, 25, and 27 says. It, the writer literally, literally quotes Haggai chapter 2. He's talking about all those who refuse Christ and all those who will be under the judgment of God. And he says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. He's reminding them. He just got through with a passage talking about how the Old Testament saints, Old Testament Israel was judged time and time again for refusing to submit to God. They rebelled over and over against him. He would judge them. They would repent. They would go fine for a while. Then they would rebel again and he would judge them. And, and so what the writer is saying is this. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they, those of the Old Testament, did not escape when they refused him who warned them on, on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? At the time, and listen, listen to what it says, at that time his voice shook the earth. So yes, we know many Old Testament times where God's voice shook the earth. But now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The direct quote from Haggai by the writer of Hebrews. This, now he explains it for us. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. And he's, he's explaining, what, what is this great earthquake? He's talking about the removal of all things that have been made by God on this earth. All things that we know. All the tangible, physical, geographical things. They will all be shaken and moved away. Why? So that that which can never be shaken will remain. And that's our promise, folks. There are some things that will never be shaken. The sovereignty of God will never be shaken. His throne will never be shaken. His rule will never be shaken. The salvation of his people will never be shaken. My standing in Christ will never be shaken. That's our glorious hope. And not only that, the kingdom of God that he has prepared for us will never be shaken. I mean, think about what we're seeing here. I mean, the highest mountains and the remotest islands shall all be shaken by God's judgment. They will be pushed down, squashed to nothing. And they'll all pass away. 
to make room for a new heaven and a new earth. That's what, that's what we see. If we, look at, if we take a sneak peek to Revelation 21, verses 4 and 5, look what it says. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. I love how from the point we're at now through Revelation's end, we do see that things have escalated, and we begin to see more and more of these end-time pictures. And boy, how we need some comfort, because we've seen visions that are heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to think about the judgment of God falling on a complete nation, world, everybody judged under his wrath, families literally separated for eternity. I mean, this is the crux of the matter, right? This is what's so hard for people to come to Christ that are in Muslim families or Jewish families, those who, who vehemently reject Jesus Christ. And, and, and when the Holy Spirit reveals the truth to somebody and they see him as the Savior, one of the tugs is, what about my family? What about the rest of my family who deny him vehemently? They, they will not trust him. And it's a hard thing for us as Christians. When people ask me and have asked through the years, what about my, my grandmother who totally denied Christ? You're telling me she's in hell. That is a hard thing to, to, to say, folks to the affirmative. But if we believe the Bible, we have no choice but to say all of those who have rejected Christ are under his wrath. This is hard. I have a mother that I never met. I don't know where her, where her faith was. I have no clue about my birth mother. But I have to say, based on the authority of God's word, that if she did not trust Christ and his grace, she's under his wrath. This is all we know, and this is hard. Now, this is, and the reason I'm saying this, folks, is what we, under, what we have to understand is when Christ comes back, that's it. There's, a, there's separation of families, those who knew Christ and those who didn't. The sheep and the goat, that, that's a real separation, folks. We, we see it all through Scripture. This is why we plead. Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel while there is time, while there is grace. And can we, we can't even imagine. We can't fathom that. And I'm telling you, folks, heaven would not be heaven if we go through all of heaven seeing our loved ones under the wrath of God and knowing of that. Could we? And that's where I think Revelation 21, 4 and 5 are so beautiful for us. One of the first things God does as, as we're moving into the new heavens and the new earth after the judgment has happened and, and the separation has occurred from the sheep, those who have trusted Christ and are under his grace, and the goats, those who have rejected his free gift of salvation, one of the first things that happens is verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And I can't help but think that along with that is included the memory of, of our loved ones. I know it's like, what, what is that? How could you go through eternity with a memory of a loved one knowing they're burning in hell? I think God's grace for us is here, mentioned right away in Revelation, that he will wipe away every tear every tear. Those tears are connected to memories. Those tears are connected to people. And God says, I, I'll take care of that in my grace for you. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Look, look here's, here's why I connect all that. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. It will be brand new. Now, right now, folks, obviously, on this side of eternity, none of us understand this stuff. None of us understand it. 
in our, in our flesh, we kick against it. We may be right now crying out, I don't, li- I don't like that. I don't, I don't understand this. I don't like this. And yet God in his infinite mercy and grace lovingly takes care of us by supplying all of our needs, even needs that we don't even now understand that we have, even needs that we can't even now understand that we, we need him to meet. But he will meet them here because everything about our future lives will be made new. Everything. Now, some people love that, obviously. Those who have had a, a broken past, a wicked past, a, a, a betrayed past, a, a life that has been nothing but rejection after rejection and, and total abuse and, and martyrdom or whatever it was on earth. Yeah, we can't wait for all things to be made new. But there's also pain that sometimes we neglect to preach on, I think, and that's one of them. Just to be honest, folks, our families will be separated. This is why, again, let us preach Christ now. This is why, by the way, it's more loving to risk a friendship by telling somebody about their sin now than affirming them now and letting them feel good about themselves and die forever separated from the love of God and be under his wrath. I didn't mean to get into any of that, actually, folks, but thank, thank the Lord for his word. But what we do see about this making all things new, it's been debated by scholars. What does this mean about the earth passing away? Or, uh, you know, it, 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 some scholars would say, now, wait a minute, does everything really melt and just totally go into oblivion and be gone? Or is it more of a purging, shaking of this earth and the evil is gone and he makes a new earth out of the existing earth and I think at that point, we're just splitting hairs. That's my, you know, I'm not, I don't, whether it's a, whether this earth fully melts away, there's plenty of verses that talk about that, that, hey, it's melted, the, 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 the mountains are no more, the islands are no more. Uh, that could mean literally that everything vanishes. But also, we cannot take Paul's words for granted when he says the whole earth right now groans waiting for redemption. This very earth is waiting for redemption and, and being, being made new when Christ returns. So that would, that would mean it's going to go through judgment, but it will also be made new. Either way, either way, folks, here's the fact at the end, the, the end of the day. The fact is that the earth must undergo such extreme judgment uh, because everything will be made new. So that's my point. Bottom line is the earth as we know it will be gone. One way or the other, this earth as we know it today will be gone and a new earth <laughs> will be in its place. So that's, that's the bottom line there. But look at this. I like what Richard Phillips says. If nothing else, and this is something we're going to think about, because don't miss the main point here, uh, getting off on these rabbit trails. The main point is God's hatred for sin is so strong. His holiness must respond to sin in such a way that the whole earth suffers. The whole earth is judged. I like what, so, so Richard Phillips, he puts it this way. If nothing else persuades us of the horror of sin, the smashing of the world at the end of the age should prove to us how horrific in God's holy sight is the stain of every sin committed by man. So let us take note and repent. That's the call that God gives us on a daily basis. All of us, Christian, non-Christian, we all must repent of that sin that so easily sneaks in. All right, having said that, okay, we, we see that without a question, the physical world will be shaken and burned up and things will be squashed and, and 
maybe totally melted. We, we just know it's God's judgment. Purging this physical world, this physical planet. But not only will the geographical things be destroyed, but the cities and the societies of mankind are destroyed. Revelation 16, 19, I just want to remind us what it says. It said, the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the, dr- uh, the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Now, Babylon, of course, throughout Scripture, is a, a picture of an antichrist kingdom. Uh, these, in literal Bible times, Babylon was Israel's most feared enemies. Babylon is, is where they were taken to captivity. To, 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 to captivity. Babylon was wicked. And it represents, again, this broad picture of an antichrist system. It represents all societies as we know it today. All of those who have this, this beastly, antichrist, anti-God way of thinking and living, that's, that's what Babylon represented and represents. And so when we see that Not only does he remember Babylon and make it drink all of the fury of his wrath, but that great city, Babylon, being split into three shows a complete destruction, right? A a complete breaking apart. And when it is broken apart, all the cities and nations fall. They're all connected is the point. This world is run by this demonic outgrowth that we saw last week. Remember the, 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 the veil, the uh, bowls were poured out and that final bowl, this demonic uh, movement among the, the nations went out. This influence. So therefore all the cities and nations of the world are basically connected to Babylon. And when God destroys that, all of them are destroyed. That, that picture, it's just a picture again of God purging all wickedness from this world. The wickedness of man's hearts, his intentions, his philosophies, his ideologies, his prized possessions. Think of how pride and arrogant man is, just like the Tower of Babel, when mankind thought that they would build a tower to heaven and challenge God's authority. Don't you love the next verse when it says, and God came down. When they had built their tower so high and they were just so proud of what they were doing, and man, we're going to go up there and question God. He came down. And confounded their, their languages. And so it's just a picture, folks, again, of man's arrogance and how we brag about our achievements. We, we brag about things that we do. Give God little or no thought. It's all about how great I am, man, mankind. And so, again, at the end, it's this, this crushing of that pride ideology. G.K. Beale puts it like this. It's not just Rome or some later great capital of evil that is decimated but all the world's cultural, political, economic, and sociological centers. They fall because they are part of the Babylonian world system. So that's a pretty good synopsis, I think. Simon Keis, the maker, puts it like this. All the human arguments and philosophical allegations that have been raised against the knowledge of God are utterly demolished. That's basically what's happening here in Revelation. Every argument against God, every foolish thought against God, it's utterly once and for all gone and and accountability is given for those actions now 
Revelation is tough to preach through, folks. I'm telling you. It's, uh, I, feel, I feel I look at you every week, and I'm thinking, man, more judgment, more wrath, more pain, more suffering. This is what it just it is what it is, right? And yet these verses cause us to focus on what really matters. That's what we should be doing, folks. We should be allowing God's word to break into our heart and to prioritize our lives. The question is, do, we have, do I believe it? Do we believe this is God's book? Do we believe the promise even of this particular book in God's book of books, 66 books? Do we believe that the promise of Revelation was, blessed are those who read and understand the words of this prophecy? If we do, then we're going to let that change us. It's going to cause us to refocus our lives on what really does matter then. If this is all going to happen, folks, if this, everything I'm reading, and it could happen any moment, and if that's true, how should I be living? <laughs> should it not change my life a, a little bit if I really believe this? The world's not my home. We're citizens of another. That's the, that's the real message under all of this. Philippians 3, I'm going to close with, close with just a few uh, passages outside of Revelation just to kind of bring it all home for us as Christians here who are who are seeing Revelation as a love letter from Jesus to his church saying, hang in there. Hang in there. I know all of it. None of this is a surprise. Everything you're going through is just, it's, I've ordained it all. And it's for ultimately for my glory and for your good. So hang in there. But notice what it does to help us prioritize our lives. In Philippians 3, 18 through 21, Paul kind of brings it around to us like this. He says, for many of whom I have told you, uh, are, he said, for, for, let's start that over. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. And we're all brokenhearted by that in our world today. There are many who just are just blatant enemies of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with, with, with minds set on earthly things. So notice the commonality of those who are not people of God. They love this world. Their minds are, are set on these things. They glory in their shame. They don't care about morality. They cannot be made to blush. They care only about their sensual pleasure. Their God is their belly. But look at this. Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And Philippians talks about that. The fact that Christ, the conquering king, will one day subject all things to himself. The whole world will be his footstool and is his footstool. He is the sovereign God and king. And we're waiting for him. And we will have a body like his. That's that resurrection that we've talked about. We will have a body like his. Now look at this. And think about this. It's hard. It's hard to remember our citizenship in heaven sometimes. We read verses like this. We leave here tonight. And right away we're going to watch the news. And we're going to see a sad story. We're going to hear some, something bad happened to some friend of ours or something bad's going to happen to us and get a flat tire on the way home whatever we're going to be frustrated and and uh, get home and get the milk out to have some nice uh, a nice bedtime snack tonight with your chocolate chip cookies and your milk like i like to do occasionally 
and you're going to smell the milk, milk sour. Oh, no, my world's come to an end. I mean, we, but we're going to, we get so distracted, don't we, by stuff right away. The world just, pshh. it's hard to remember I'm a citizen of heaven. And the, and the devil, by the way, is also wanting us to forget it. So he's trying to do everything he can to keep us preoccupied and not to claim our rightful heirship. The, we are heirs of heaven. The psalmist struggled with this. And I love Psalm 73, verses 12 and 13. Let's, let's identify with this. He said, behold, these are the wicked. So he describes all the wicked people around him. They're always at ease. They increase in riches. <laughs> all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Do you see that? I think we can relate to this. He said, I serve the Lord. I keep myself from sin. All these wicked people who deny God and break his laws, they live in ease and they're rich. They have everything they want. While here I am serving God and I'm suffering. And it's so easy for us as Christians to allow that to determine our walk with God, to, to be bitter. Even though we may not admit it, we lose faith. We don't trust God. We don't believe God. If we're honest as Christians in this world that have lived and, and, and we're, we're, we're living in these times of people attacking us or our sin attacking us or whatever, and, and our eyes are off of the promise. And then we get bitter by looking at everybody else and say, well, what's the use? Why am I doing this? But look at, look at verse 16. He says, but... <laughs> But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to be, it seemed to me a wearisome task. So it's hard to understand why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? So it's a weary task to think about until I went into the sanctuary of God. And that really is our problem. We stay away from the sanctuary of God and we get steeped in this world and we start trying to use the philosophy of this world to understand the craziness of this world. You can't do it. I need to come into the sanctuary of God and hear his word, his promises, his truth, look upon his Savior, Jesus Christ, that was given for me. And what does he say next once he did that? Then I discerned their end. <laughs> I was reminded of the way it all ends for them. Truly, you have set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. You see, once he got under the word of God again, he, he was reminded of what we're reminded of tonight. This is one blessing of coming and hearing the book of Revelation. We're hearing about how all of this world ends. And if I continue to reject God and I continue to deny him, that's my end. It's not good. The wicked will not win. Folks, I'm telling you, instead of us as what this doesn't reprioritize things for us. Instead of us being bitter and jealous and covetous of sinners, we should pity them. Be glad they've got the little trinkets they've got now. That's all they're ever going to get if they never repent and trust Christ. And on the opposite side, not only is that all they're ever going to get to enjoy, they will suffer the immeasurable, endless wrath of a holy God. So how dare us as Christians covet what lost people have when we should be praying for them and witnessing to them and pleading with them 
to trust Jesus Christ, to turn from their sin, their self-sufficiency, their self-righteousness, humble themselves and run to Christ and receive his mercy and grace and everlasting joy. So I guess what I'm saying is let, let, let us live by this motto. This should be our motto. All that we do here and now should serve the then and there. All that we do here and now should serve the then and there. That's a prioritizing situation, right? I mean, that really gets us in the right frame, frame of mind. One more verse, we're done. One more, okay, one more group of verses. This is it. 2 Peter 3, 11 through 15. I love what Peter says here, saying the same idea that Paul said and that John has been telling us tonight in Revelation. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved. <laughs> Peter gets right to the point as he's talking to Christians living under persecution. They are being just beat up by Rome, these Christians that he's talking to in 2 Peter. But he reminds them, hey, don't forget, since all these things are going to be dissolved, that means destroyed, right? He's talking about revelation, the final judgment. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? I love that. It's just such a down-to-earth question, right? If all this is going to be melting with fervent heat under the judgment of God, how should we be living? What sort of people should we be waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let us, let us use God's word to prioritize our lives Pray for God's Spirit to give us hearts that trust it and rest in it and give us the boldness and the grace to stand against the temptations that the world throws at us to veer us off course and give us a love to warn everybody around us while we have moments that judgment is coming but rescue is sure in Christ and plead with them to trust Him. May the word of God comfort us tonight. Let's stand together and pray. Well, don't, yeah, stand and we'll sing after I pray. Go ahead and stand. <laughs> Father God, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for your truth. And even though there are things we will never understand until we stand before you, you give us a pretty clear picture of the basics. And we are so amazed that while we were rebellious, while we were self-centered, self-focused, living our own life, you, you busted in by your grace. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and you showed us this truth by your grace, and now we love him by your grace, and we want to serve him. So, Father, thank you for your word that, that continues to encourage us as your people. How should we then live? How should we walk now? The world doesn't win. They, they're not going to prosper. So, Father God, give us the grace to love them with the love of Christ, and to look forward to the glories that you have for us in Christ Jesus. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen.